Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Cat Baird, a musician whose new album, Vivification Exercises 1, is out now on Revenge International, a record that centers primarily on the piano and repetitive refrains that keep coming back and coming back. There is, as with so much of Kaz's music, a convulsive body at the center, this sense of muscles clenching and unclenching. There's almost something quite stressful listening to her music, at least heightened, but it is also gorgeous as well. You've got these piano patterns, peripheral electronics, shivers and gasps of human voice and the whole thing passes by incredibly quickly and also leaves you feeling quite exhausted at least it did for me it's quite an experience to be in this heightened state for so long it is brilliant so head over to the revenge bandcamp rvng.bandcamp.com to listen to and purchase that record also head over to Kaz's own website, cabbear.com, for more information on her. And head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Kaz's pics and links to her music as well, along with a hefty back catalogue of crucial listening episodes. So thank you as always for listening. I had a great time chatting with Ka. I think you'll enjoy this one. Please enjoy. This is Cat Bed on Crucial Listening. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So you are here to talk about three important records primarily, but before we get stuck into those records, I want to start by talking about your new record, Vivification Exercises 1, which came out just recently. If I'm right, this is one for which the initial conception, or at least the ideas involved, came out of your time at Roulette's Brooklyn Theatre, is that right? Yeah, I was a resident there in 2018, an artist in resident, a program that they have through and supported by the Jerome Foundation. And so I was working on um, an evening of music to be presented. And I had two pieces I was working on, both for multiple channels, four channels. Uh, One was more based around flute and voice, which actually a lot of those pieces ended up going on my revenge release, Respires, actually. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was this four-channel piece with piano and electronics, and that's what became the Vivication Exercises 1. And I label it 1 because I do anticipate it being a series, 
I was actually going to do a second version of it at the kitchen with intermediate artist Max Albacher in April of last year, and it got canceled because of COVID. So. Of course. But yeah, the Vivication Exercises 1 is the first rendition, which was originally performed on four channels, the piano in the middle of the space, actually on the floor off the stage with the four speakers surrounding it, kind of swirling electronics around a more centralized piano sound. And I heard you talk a little bit, like a very little bit about it on Roulette's own podcast, actually, like right at the end of the Uh. edit. But I'm curious to know, what are your memories, if there are any, of that performance uh, doing it initially? Like, do you have anything that comes to mind there? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, one of the main things or inspirations with that piece was really like uh, um, approaching the piano from a very like rhythmic perspective, kind of a rhythmic minimalist minimalist perspective. And I think that that sort of brings out a bit of a maddening quality to that record, but it was something (laughs) that was very important to me to do. Mm. Um, Most of them I was, I, I, I composed entirely on my own, except the very last piece was actually a, a collaboration with a friend of mine on electronics, Crystal Penalosa. And the performance was, um, I remember it being a very, very, you know, charged experience, like most live performances are for me. Performance is a integral part of my practice and um, a very, very like, yeah, and that's one thing that's definitely been missing in this this year of COVID, right? Um, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was a little, it was also, I remember like being a little, a little disorienting, being uh, performing in the middle of the room with the speakers surrounding it. I remember there being a little mm. bit of like trickiness in terms of like monitoring um, just to get into technicalities. Oh, and gosh, I yeah. don't perform on piano as much as I do with voice and electronics and flute. So I think I was very, very nervous. And and those pieces were very kind of, in a certain way, they were kind of precise. I know if if you listen to that, there's there's definitely some elements of freedom and uh, improvisation within those, but they were pretty, as I said, rhythmic. And so Mm. I I kind of got flashbacks to, you know, piano recitals as a kid and my (laughs) fingers just like dripping in sweat. And I think I started off a little shakily, but I, I eventually, I think stumbled into the zone so that recording though is actually not from the live performance uh because that the recording from that performance was meant for four channels so Mm -hmm. i i and i and i wanted to re-record the piano um just because again i was a little nervous at the performance so it was like the studio version of that live performance and i want to ask you about as well you mentioned the fact that it was very precise Playing these motifs that you do, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but incredibly repetitive, incredibly intense to listen to. I mean, I don't yeah. know if the word stressful is is right, but I mean, I, I'm hearing when I'm listening, just I can imagine myself trying to play these and, and being like, I, you know, I need to keep track of the where the emphasis on, is on this rhythm because if it's lost, <laughs> right. will it ever come back? Like, what's it like to be right in the thick of trying to play these things? 
<laughs> well, it's a mind game for sure. <laughs> it's one of those like do but not do kind of things. You right. have to really yeah. <laughs> go into a zone where you don't let your mind trip you up, especially when you're doing something so repetitive mm. and simple, like especially, yeah, I guess I'm thinking specifically like two and five. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's where I always want to be when I perform, you know, I want to be in a place where I, I'm, I'm, I know technically the material so well that I can just really enjoy the performance and not get like caught in the details of the technicalities. Um, mm. mm -hmm. But I mean, it's, it's really a hellacious record. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really, <laughs> it's not, it's not easy. It isn't easy to listen to that. It's, it is, it is, I think it's fair to say it's a fairly anxiety ridden suite of, of, of piano tracks. Um, but it was something I had to get out of my system. I think there was something, it, it caught a very particular like energy for me. Mm. And um, I also find that, yeah, I just, I, I find the piano kind of uh it's a challenge for me to like find something on there that I want to go deeper into. I think because the piano has been just so explored up and down and all around right. and yeah. I, and it has so many, Oh, I don't know, like just reference connotations. I mean, all instruments mm -hmm. do agree, but the piano seems particularly loaded and it's such a huge ass, just like kind of pompous instrument and, <laughs> Um, <laughs> so it's, I, I find myself very picky about, about the piano and, and it's about finding where I can, yeah, fall into something. Your voice as well on this record is a really cool element. Um, I'm intrigued as to how you settle upon your approach for these pieces vocally when you're, you're making them. I mean, it feels like something that... You know, the voice, it sounds like such a reflexive presence on the record. But then again, there's something I think maybe about the way that it's recorded or captured, which gives it just this super samurai precision as well. So what interesting. Is yeah, yeah. Hmm. A, a total confession here. The piano, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the vocals were a little bit of an afterthought. Right. Um, yeah, maybe that's obvious. I, I. So when I originally performed them, there were no vocals. It was all instrumental, minus like a couple like little hoops and hall that would just kind of come while playing. But, um, you know, I think that once I had got the record to a place where it was like, this is what it was. This is what it is. Um, mm. I, 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 had a, I, I had some conversations with some, some dear friends and, you know, I was encouraged to possibly explore putting a little punction, a few more like little punctuations in it to sort of personalize it and warm it up as if like, cause the record had a sort of maybe, I don't know, maybe a little bit of like a, a cold feeling to it. And right. so I think the idea was to warm it up with the vocals. Hmm. Fair. I mean, I, yeah. I should say, uh, I absolutely love the record. I think even though, as you said, and, and I mentioned as well, there is, an anxiety and a stress to it. It's addictive as well. Those are always the experiences that spin me out. Um, Thank like, you so much. Why am I going in for this again? <laughs> but something's pulling me in. Um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was a record that, like, I I was really gonna just kind of let 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 go of, and and because you know it's a couple of years old now, and mm. you know I had it sort of 
yeah. in, 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 in the archives and sort of re brought it back out during COVID. And, but it, I, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that I decided to, to let that cat out of the bag. <laughs> and where can people <laughs> check it out as well, Kat? Um, well, I think there's still some cassettes if you want a physical um, copy of it through Commend There, which is a sort of off-label of Revenge, um, the label Revenge based out of New York. And cool. if you want the digital, I believe, it, well, there's, it's definitely on Bandcamp and you can buy the cassette there as well. I think it's also on your streaming services, if I'm not mistaken. Super. I will link to all of those. I thoroughly recommend, like I say, people do dive into that record. It's amazing. Uh, Carl, we should talk about your important records. And one question I like to ask is about how you thought about the term important when you were coming to your selection. I mean, I got a, an email through that <laughs> kind of laid out how you approached it, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, if you could tell me how you thought about the term important to come up with the selection that you did. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to answer that or my quote-unquote important records or just try to kind of do both <laughs> let's go for both let's see what we okay, get okay okay well important records important um you know i've been doing music experimental music since uh you know the late 90s um i started really my music career in chicago illinois and uh, my my first big creative uh, outlet and project was the psych folk band Spires that in Sunset Rise that I founded with childhood friends, um, Tara Lee Peterson, Georgia Vallis, and Tracy Peterson. Hmm. And it was um, a group that really kind of dominated my creative musical uh, landscape up until when I moved to New York in 2013. So I really, you know, my foundations were like quite deep in Spires. So, you know, some really pivotal records that came out in uh, those, th that era was, mm. um, oh, I think it was like 2004 was um, our second record, Four Wins the Walker. It was, it's a real epic classic. It's actually the only Spires record that was never put on LP. And so any of you music geeks out there who like reissues, <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how much Four Wins the Walker needs to be reissued on uh, vinyl. <laughs> um, then later, um, and that was kind of a more wild psychedelic folk sort of in the vein of like Comus and uh, Harry Parch, just really uh, kind of weird instruments, weird instrument tunings, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and then maybe we jump ahead later to a later record of, Tara, of the, the band when the band became more uh, just me and Tara. And that was, let's say, Spires and Sunset Rise, Ancient Patience, Wills It Again, one and two, which was um, a more kind of evolved place of songwriting where, you know, we were there was a little more of a polished feel to it, um, but still definitely in the land of sort of psychedelic folk music. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would say that uh, Beasts in the Garden, and uh, which is another Spires record, as well as some collaborations that Spires did with Chicago drummer Michael Zarang, kind of took us more than into an improvisation territory where we started to touch the peripheries of free jazz or just... Um, yeah, improvisation. Mm. And then that sort of abridged me then from my move into New York, where I started to 
embrace more um, electronic music and uh, more my kind of like more maybe even a, an interest in more minimalist um, takes on things. And so, um, you know, the two solo records then um, are Cyberpelic Picnic, which came out through Drag City, and then this most recent one, Respires Through Revenge. And both Cyberpelic Picnic and Respires are kind of cousin albums. They have a lot, a lot in common. They almost, I could almost look at those two albums as like a diptych, where I was exploring um, deeply, like rhythm, flute, and voice. And mm. um, it comes out in sort of a. Uh, kind of reads a little bit ritualistic or something. And it was during those two records that I really embraced a sort of an, 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 a more embodied approach to performing. I performed in a chair with Spires for the most part, you know, up through like 2000, oh God, 2017. For wow. the most part, I was always in a chair. And I think it was in 2017 when I was touring with my friend Haley and her band Circuit de U. Um, hmm. I was like, I'm going to stand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stand. And I did. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and suddenly I could just, I don't know, like the, 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 the area of space that I could command. And, <laughs> um, and so my, you know, my performances have always been embodied, but it's like, I, I needed that chair to right. contain my embodiedness. <laughs> Cause I'm sort of this walking paradox of like, being very channeled and uh, pretty like, yeah, exuberant performer, but also being kind of shy at the same time. And so, right. uh, but, but, but yeah, that was a big change for in 2017 when I finally started to stand up and my, 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 my performances from then on took on an extra layer of, of, of movement and embodiment at that point. <laughs> okay. And so then, and then important in terms of this selection, I mean, you know, I I actually before uh, this interview, I went back to just confirm what word you used. Like, was it your favorite? Was it most important? I just know mm. that like as as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, you know, <laughs> wow, what a challenge! Like that's that's <laughs> impossible. You right. know, I have never <laughs> been able to even tell you what my favorite ice cream flavor is, let alone <laughs> my three favorite. <laughs> records or important records. So I really took it as like, okay, like what records do I want to talk about or like give mm -hmm. airspace air to? And, and, and also like how they perhaps uh, represent an aspect of my own practice or have inspired me in a certain way that has, that has informed my, my practice. Wonderful answer. So Let's take whichever record you want to talk about first, Kat. Um, <laughs> I'll let you pick. Um, give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Sure. Um, okay, well, the first record I chose was the 1967 release, Love Forever Changes. And in some ways, I categorize these selections by like an element. And mm. I look at this as like the air of my choices. <laughs> and uh, this record um, I was introduced to when I was, was pretty young. Um, I mean, not crazy young. I was probably in my early 20s. And 
I was living in North Carolina at the time and I have a really dear friend from college, Steve Krakow, AKA Plastic Crime Wave, who mm. was a huge like influence and um, introduced me and uh, Tara and the other Spires to so much good music. And this particular year when we were kind of having this lost year in North Carolina, <laughs> t- Steve sent us multiple cassettes of, um, you know, one one album on one side and one album on the other side. And I remember specifically one cassette that was played a shitload was um, Coma's first utterance on one side and the other side was Vashti Bunyan, Another Diamond Day. But these tapes mm. were like, I mean... I don't know, Harry Pussy, um, a lot of like Japanese psych, the Fushitsusha, Mainliner, Lydia Lunch, Eight-Eyed Spy, um, just, wow. just like mind-blowing stuff. But one of those cassettes was uh, Love Forever Changes. And I wish I remembered what the, what the, what the, what the was album was ask. on the flip. Because yeah. <laughs> that I, we did kind of like look at them as like this pairing. Um, but that album, you know, we, we had no context for it at all. But it was one that once we like slipped in to the cassette player, we just put on repeatedly. And I mean... In some ways, when you asked me like important records, I also thought a little bit of like Desert Island. And one was like, okay, well, one album I would really love to just be able to sing along to. And mm. this is one record where I can just absolutely, you know, put this on in a long drive and sing through the entire record. <laughs> I think it is the most strange album in the sense that and this has to do with a little of some of my other picks too like it does not really fit cleanly into any sort of category you know mm. i mean it's 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 it takes elements of um folk rock but like there's there's psychedelic qualities to it for sure there's some or obviously like the wrecking crew is is does the instrumentation so there's this really lush orchestral mm. pop element to it there's little flashes of like sort of baroque stylings there's a latin flair to it you know <laughs> yeah. um and so i mean i i i uh and then in and then in 2002 no three i had the chance to see them play live um at Park West in Chicago on, I'm not sure how many dates were on this tour, but um, it was the year after Arthur Lee got out of prison um, mm. from a false allegation um, of like sh- firing, uh, shooting a firearm illegally. And it was actually proved that he was not guilty, but he ended up having to spend five years in jail for that. And the year after he got out, he, they did this reunion tour and it was incredibly um, amazing. They had a full orchestra <laughs> section, a full like horn section. Um, but I mean, yeah, this album, Love for Changes. I mean, I think it was a seminal 60s album that was like, you know, when I was reading a little bit more about it, just on like the factual standpoint, like a lot of people look at it as kind of this, like an album that's sort of like, was just like the end of 60s idealism and i think um arthur lee supposedly was very kind of skeptical of the whole like countercultural movement the 60s counterculture movement at the time and you know there's some kind of like dark brooding lyrics on this record um Mm. that i think were like i don't know 
I mean, the record didn't do super great when it first came out, but, <laughs> no. but, 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 and I think maybe it was because like there was, um, I don't know, maybe the, they, people weren't ready for that darkness or something, or I don't mm. know. I don't know. Um, I mean, there's, I think my favorite of the tracks perhaps is the red telephone. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, just how it starts off sitting on the hillside, watching all the people die. I'll feel much better on the other side. Um, And then my very, very favorite line, I believe in magic. Why? Because it is so quick. I don't need power when I'm hypnotized. Look in my eyes. (laughs) And then that whole, like, sometimes I deal with numbers. And if you want to count me, count me out. I don't need the times of day. Any time with me is okay. I just don't want you using up my time because that's not right. And then they're locking them up today. They're throwing away the key. I wonder who it'll be tomorrow, you or me. Um, and then at the end, freedom, freedom. I want my freedom. All of God's children's got to have their freedom. And it's almost a little eerie there because it's it's like sort of like... Uh, prescient of uh, what's coming in Arthur's life later. Right, Um, yeah. mm -hmm. And then the next song, Live and Let Live, I mean, obviously, I think this band, I mean, this is definitely considered a very psychedelic album, and I know the band, when they first started recording, I think they were having some drug issues and doing some, certainly LSD, and I think some heroin. I don't know how much they continue to do that throughout the course of this record. That's, that's unclear to me, but, but Mm. there's a certain sort of surrealness to, to Arthur Lee's lyrics that, (laughs) um, I mean, like the live and let live. Okay. Oh, the snot has caked against my pants. It has turned into crystal. There's a bluebird sitting on a branch. I guess I'll take my pistol. I've got it in my hand because he's on my land. And like, this is how the story ended. And I mean, it's this kind of like (laughs) fucked up uh, track on land rights. And, you know, he references uh, an Indian or I'm supposing he has some assuming he's meaning a Native American later on in the song. And that song ends with write the rules in the sky, but ask your leader why, why? So anyway, that's my air album. That's my language. I mean, that's like, you know, the album where like if I was I was a stranded on desert island, I could sing my way through the hours, you know? Mm, For sure. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like a record when you describe certain contextual details of the album. And also when I've read about it as well, the fact that they the band were sounds like apart from lee were really quite lackluster to begin with about recording it and so right. they brought in session musicians to sort of scare the band really to be like right we're going to do it with these guys instead totally. and they were like oh shit <laughs> and then had to get their act together to record the rest of the thing that's exactly right that's what mm. i mean the, 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 the wrecking crew and the studio musicians kind of got the rest of the band like into into, into gear yeah I mean, that all sounds like the backstory of a record that was going to be a car crash, you know, forced into life, uh, sort of against the will of the band, just had to drag them through. And especially as well, it sounds like that the the label were like, you should probably explore like more of a folk music sound on this record, right? It was right. At their instigation. I mean, label intervention is not generally associated with 
super results either, you know? <laughs> I agree. I feel like this record had everything going against it. And, <laughs> and the fact that it has become this strange uh, classic now, um, it, mm. it, is, it is mysterious. It is mysterious. I mean, there are several tracks, I think, on the record where it is just Arthur Lee and the studio musicians, the rest of the band's not even on it. So, mm. but, but I think the Brian McLean or whatever, I think the other guitar vocalist songwriter, I know he definitely penned a couple of the tracks, but I think most of them were by Arthur. And you've had it in your life for so long. I, has there been right. like an undulation in terms of your favorite tracks or tracks that have really come out from you know, nowhere for you and been like, oh shit, actually now this one really connects. Like what's your relationship with it been like over the years? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that that is, I mean, there are certain records, right, that stand the test of time, mm -hmm. particularly like records that you like in high school. Maybe <laughs> you don't anymore, but certain ones stand the <laughs> test of time. And this one, this one, this one has, um, I guess, I don't know, maybe my relationship has changed in the sense that I've become more familiar with the legacy of the band and I've become more familiar with the legacy of Arthur Lee mm. and a little bit more of the context of the record. Whereas, you know, my appreciation of it initially was just simply, you know, how much I enjoyed the abstract, bizarre sort of lyrics and the, and the great songwriting. Magic. Why? Because it is so quick. I don't need power when I'm hypnotized. Look in my eyes. What are you seeing? I see. How do you feel? I feel real phony when my name. Okay, cool. Cal, let's go to your second record now. So again, if you could give me the name of it and a little bit about why it's important. So the other one I picked was the 1969 record, Sonny Schrock, Black Woman. And this one, uh, kind of maybe I was thinking the Fire Earth record, right. where, yeah. you know, this is definitely the more, the release, the release of the, of the, of the three um, you know, this is a this is a this is just an infamous explosion of a record that was you know recorded you know at a really really charged time in the free music scene, uh, the free jazz scene, hmm. and it it you know it has a, a, a incredible cast of characters: Sonny Schrock on guitar, Linda Schrock voice, <clears throat> Milford Graves is on drums, yeah. Morris Jones on bass, Dave Burrell on piano. And, you know, again, this is a record that doesn't easily fit into a category and sort of straddles um, blues, gospel, rock and roll. I mean, right. Certain world music influences again. I don't think people have considered like the beginning of was it Peanut and Portrait of Linda sort of having these like sort of like Caribbean sort of like hints to it. Mm. Um, it's an absolute just onslaught. It's an exorcism, right? Oh my gosh, and yeah. um, this was actually I was I was introduced to this one later actually um, one that had sort of missed my radar. So it was a you know. 
I don't know, maybe I just heard it for the first time, like maybe eight, eight years ago, eight, nine years ago, and then went deep into the world of Sonny Chirac and checked out, you know, his whole, his whole rep, his whole, his whole body of work, including the late, the, the one he made the next year, Monkey, Pocky Boo, as well as the one he made five years later, Paradise, which is a tighter, groovier, funkier record. But this one just, I mean, I just wanted to give this one like some airtime because, um, you know, along with, of course, just every single person just killing it on this record. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I also was just, you know, so blown away by, by Linda Chirac's performance. Right. Okay. So, yeah. and that was sort of an introduction to Linda and, um, you know, I, I've, I'm, I, I've always just gotten super excited about anyone who like tries to defy the limitations of whatever instrument they're using, whether it's, you know, the guitar or whether it's voice. And there's moments in that record where, I don't know, like the guitar becomes the voice, the voice becomes the guitar. They sort of melt into each other. You don't know what's what or who's who. Mm -hmm. um, and the sort of like guttural primal screams and yelps. I just, I, I, I think, you know, it, I, I don't know how much Linda was maybe influenced by, I, I don't know. There's speculation that she was really influenced maybe by Patty Waters album college tour or like her performances at that time, like earlier in the sixties, but mm. whatever it was, I mean, she was on her own trip and um, <laughs> you know, I just, I, I think I just, I just get a sort of exuberance when I listen to something that breaks all the rules and kind of just like, and this album in particular, I mean, it has its, it has its, you know, wild, fiery tracks like Peanut and Portrait of Linda Three Colors, but then like track four, suddenly you're, you know, it's like just solo acoustic guitar sort of in the homage to a blues player, you know, right. sort of, and so it has, it has a very um, unique trajectory, the record itself. And I also kind of wanted to pick this record too, because of, well, I forget if I picked it before I heard about Milford Graves passing or not, but right. I think I maybe, I think I'm, I forget if I picked it before or after, honestly, but I'm, if I did pick it before, I'm really glad that I did because yeah. just, just giving, um, giving that, creative um emancipated soul like some some more devotion you know i have i never met uh, milford but i have some colleagues in new york who did he had a kind of a small circle of kind of apprentices of sorts and mm. you know he was just an incredibly influential person um musically and spiritually and just someone who totally like redefined what you can be as a person and what you can be as an artist. And um, this, re this record just gives me nothing but, but, but energy and um, presence, you know? Yeah. yeah. Beautifully put. I mean, this is the first time I'd heard this record. Oh I'm shit. Definitely buying this. Holy shit. <laughs> um, so you said you found out about it eight years ago, right? Initially, or that's when you first heard it. Um, yeah, you... I first heard it about, I think I first heard it um, right around when I moved to New York, yeah. Right. And did you like it straight away? <laughs> well, I did because, again, I I have a soft spot for 
any kind of wild banshee shit you know it's like i think i have i have i have that sort of yoko um ono like stubborn persistence i like a yoko oh no okay <laughs> and so no i i feel almost like a defense immediately like this oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Call it just like the iconoclast or rebel. Or, I don't know. I don't know. So yeah. that, I grew up, you know, a lot of the music. I mean, I, I was someone who like was really into like outsider music. You know, I liked like we loved the shags, you know, mm -hmm. we liked we just liked fresh takes. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. This is definitely one of those. <laughs> did it have did you did you resist it initially? No, this was oh, okay. absolutely <laughs> like I just um, I was intrigued as to where you were at that time in terms of free music. I mean, whether or not this was one that you're like, whether or not it was, you know, something that you were completely into. I know sometimes with these important records, you know, they're ones that are initially like, oh, fuck this. You know, this is right, 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 right. And then, and are, and then they, because they've broken something, you know, like... Um, those are the interesting stories, actually. I should have... Uh, that would be a fun of a picked album that I hated at first. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'm this so was glad you picked this Pretty one. much love at first, <laughs> yeah. at first listen. I mean, I, I've always been just you know, attracted to like extreme vocal release. I mean, I was, when I was living in New Orleans, when I heard Demonica Laws being played by my neighbor upstairs, I just was- Oh my God, wow. I just was like, what, what the f I went up and knocked on their door. I'd never even hardly met her. And I was like, what the F are you playing <laughs> is this? And she's like, and then boom, that was my introduction to Demonica Laws. But I mean, I had to troop right upstairs and get that information. It was essential. Wow. Matt, that, I mean, that's when you know that you're uh, living in, Good company. Wow. <laughs> yes. um, what? So you said that this record took you into Sonny Sherrock's music generally. I mean, I don't know loads about him. I mean, what can you tell me about him? All, all I can see, all, all I kind of when I did a, a, a kind of cursory check on him was the fact that he considered himself a horn player with a really fucked up axe. And um, yeah, I guess he, like, I guess he initially, I guess he initially wanted to play saxophone or maybe that was even his first instrument but he had a pretty vicious case of um asthma and so right you know took the guitar instead you know okay so yeah when i said that i went and like researched more of his work i guess i mean specifically those three records with um linda which mm. were as i said black woman monkey pucky boom paradise and then and i think and then the, that record later that he came out called ask the ages Right. Um, which I think was, I believe that that was a solo release. I know that he did a lot of, he did a lot of like collaborations with Bill Laswell and I, maybe Bill Laswell yes. produced some of his later records. Um, I know that like, for instance, Chirac was, you know, he was, he was playing with Pharaoh Sanders pre yes. black woman. And I re I just realized that actually looking into this a little bit before that he played on Tahid with, with Pharaoh Sanders. And that was just like a year or two before um, the black woman album, as was Linda. Linda also played with Pharaoh, which I don't think I've ever heard any of those recordings, wow. but supposedly she did. And so I think he maybe went on to play a little more with Pharaoh as well, but actually in terms of like releases, the only one, I guess, I, that's I'm thinking can think of right now is the Ask the Ages one. I know I actually talked to Byron uh, Coley because he wrote 
the liner notes to the re-release to this record that came out a few years ago by mm. I think some kind of some European label. And I know that um, a lot of people were very sad at his death because they thought he died. He died relatively young, I think at 51 or two or three or something. Mm. And it was like, supposedly he was like on the verge of signing a major deal or something. And so people think that like, oh, he never got to completely manifest his full self. But I mean, I think that what he left was pretty damn rich. So I'm happy for what he left. Great. Well, Kat, let's go to your final record now. Again, if you could give me the name of it and a bit about why it's important too. Yeah. Um, the last one is the Elian Radig songs in Milarepa. And, um, you know, I noticed, I briefly went to your website and like checked some of the other artists that you've interviewed just because <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to do uh, like a re tons of repeats. Right. Mm-hmm. But I did notice that there were several artists that you've interviewed that picked Elian. And I think that's very interesting. Um, yeah. I, it, it makes total sense to me, though. Um, I mean, I, I let's see. So this Elion and this particular album of hers, Songs in Milarepa, I became familiar with, I guess, mm, maybe around like 2008 or something. So also fairly recently, actually. Mm. And it was during this time I was actually a, a, a librarian in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was... Um, I think I was just doing some like research and ended up like, like ordering a ton of Elian's records through outer library loan at the time. And (laughs) I think I had read some article just about the, the, the quote unquote women of electronic music. Right. And this Mm. whole, this whole like cast of characters who are now finally kind of getting their like just dues right. of, you know, Elian Radig and Lori Spiegel and Daphne Oram and Suzanne Chiani. Um, uh, yeah. Are, are, are like, you know, being nodded as like, you know, pioneers in the world of like early electronic and synthesizer music. Mm. So I, ordered a few of Elian's CDs and one of them was Songs of Milarepa and, and, and this was actually what I got through Outer Library Loan was I think the 1998 Lovely Music reissue of the, the entire ah. works that Elian had done inspired by the Songs of Milarepa. I explain this because I later got confused because there's also an LP that's out that's called Songs of Milarepa that was put out through Lovely Music in 1983 mm. that is a part of this like collection. I think it's 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 specifically Mila's journey inspired by a dream, which is this like um 
I think it's about an, I think it's like an hour long track, but I was confused because when I heard the LP, I was like, this seems different than what I had heard. So I went back and sort of researched it. And the record that I actually am referring to for listeners out there, it's a little tricky, honestly, is specifically finding, and it's it's uploaded to Vimeo and it's, I think all of them are uploaded to YouTube at least. And I probably, you can still order the CD from Lovely Music, I don't know, is the 1998 reissue that has all um, five tracks, yes. Mila's Song in the Rain, Song of the Path Guides, Elimination of Desires, Symbols of Yogic Experience, and Mila's Journey Inspired by a Dream. And um, basically, I had no idea what I was putting on when I put this on. <laughs> wow. I, I really had no idea. I mean, I've... I certainly have had or had at that point like some exposure to pe Tibetan Buddhism. I'd read a ton of books, dabbled with some meditation. Pema Chodron has been a major person, writer, influencer in my life with her with her amazing books, like mm. When Things Fall Apart and The Places That Scare You, et cetera. So I had like a basis in Eastern, you know, thought and specifically Buddhist thought. But when I put this on and my brother, I think was over at the time, we both just like laid down on our backs and like went on this journey with this record that not only was it an introduction to Elian Radig, it was also my introduction to Robert Ashley. So, right. I mean, I think that it was this combination of, I mean, obviously Elian Radig's just amazing, subtle, spacious, sensitive, uh, fluctuations that was, she was doing, I believe it was the ARP 2500. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, um, you know, there'd be these really long, long, just open, open spaces with just that synthesizer going. And then Robert Ashley's voice coming in. <laughs> and it was just, it was, it was such a surreal, disorienting, but also like, totally captivating moment where i don't know i mean it's it his delivery i just think is like <laughs> he's sort of like singing and speaking at the same time yeah and these texts where he's just like you know robert ashley's like his cadence and his choice of where he's going to put emphasis in a word on what syllable is mm. so bizarre and so unique and so as i said like disorienting that I, it really worked for me i mean i i feel like i really i went deep into this land of milrepa and the stories of this like ascetic saint who you know whenever um a disciple would ask him a question he would respond respond in song yeah um because yeah not only is is so on this record robert ashley is the English voice that's sort of telling the story of um, Jetson Milarepa and is, is called by Jetson, is called by Mila, is called by Milarepa. All of those are the same person. Ah, and right. he was an 11th century Tibetan saint. And, um, you know, Elian quit music at a certain point and, and, and devoted herself to her practice, um, her Buddhist practice. And eventually, after four years, her Buddhist teacher sent her back to play music. 
And so <laughs> Elion went back and, you know, for several pieces in a row, arguably for many of her pieces in the, or arguably all of her pieces. After right. That, yeah. There's yeah. some relation or homage to, to Buddhist thought, but, um, but there, but the, specifically the text was taken, I think from a book of poetry that, I, I'm no, I don't know enough about the history of the book, but it was supposedly songs that Milarepa um, sang. And it's origin, it's in Tibetan. And I think that Elion, if I'm not mistaken, and, 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 and her teacher somehow translated the, the, it into English. And so Robert Ashley does the English and her teacher, I think, the, her name, like Rinpoche, Lama Kungpa Rinpoche did the Tibetan version. So oh, on the cool. recording, there's Tibetan and English sort of juxtaposed. Yeah, it was a, it was a personal experience, you know? I mean, it was it, uh, that, um, yeah, made a big impression. And it was like a space. It was just like, it does the exact opposite, right? Of what the Sonny Chirac record did. I think I was <laughs> yes. into this. I was really into this contrast idea of, cause I'm, I'm so, there's so many things that, that influence me. Um, you know, space, non-space, um, minimalism, maximalism, whatever. <laughs> and this one is just, to me, like just a deep, deep, deep chasm where if, again, I was on that uh, deserted island, like this would be the one that I could just put on when I needed to zone. And in terms of the elemental aspects, this is definitely like the water of the totally. yeah, yeah, Yeah. Were you familiar with this one? Not this one. Um, So I've been listening to her music for ages. Um, Yeah. So ages, about 12 years. And loved the music. I was so struck to hear this one with the voice coming in. Um, Right. Because I'm just not used to hearing that presence in her music. But it felt, after not too long, in total alignment just because of the themes that it was addressing. I was like, yeah, this is an absolute, you know, if, if I submit to this in the same way that I submit to her music, then it makes absolute, complete sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first heard it, I, again, as I said, I did not, I was not familiar with Robert Ashley. And so it was, I think, just like, coincidentally, maybe a few weeks later that somehow someone had played a, a Robert Ashley track for me. I forget which one. Um a same night that I was introduced to Scott Walker, actually. And Bloody so hell. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and so I was like, oh, fuck, I think that's the same person who was reading on this Elion Radig. And wow. I went back and indeed it was. And, and then, of course, I went deeper into Robert Ashley's, you know, world and, you know, really, particularly really enjoyed that series he did. The one where he, in, he interviews on, in really long form, like, five or six of these stalwart uh, musicians at the time, Pauline Oliveros, David Behrman, um, Alvin Lussier. Um, oh, cool. I really, really recommend it if you haven't. If you haven't. I think it's called Music and the Roots of Ether. Music right. and the Roots of Ether is what it's called. I'll check and that it's, out. And it's a fascinating interviewing series. I mean, he, the one with Pauline Oliveros is particularly is particularly interesting. I mean, it's it's one of those styles like in classic Robert Ashley fashion where like just dead air would happen maybe for like a minute, <laughs> minute and a half here and there. <laughs> and throughout the course of the entire interview, he is having someone give give Paulina Oliveros a total makeover. 
Like they're 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 putting makeup on her what? and they're like painting her nails. And I mean it's it's <laughs> wow. And 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 you know it's I I think it's worth a conversation like what was going on there? And part of me thinks <laughs> he was he was trying to like shake he was trying to get a reaction out of Pauline, is my theory. Uh-huh. Pauline Alvarez, you know, she was so calm and collected and just you know very beautiful peaceful mm. presence and just seeing if like if you could get her out of her comfort zone you know like not wanting but nope didn't no didn't, i was gonna didn't, say didn't I, ruffle a feather you absolutely. know Holly was just like oh whatever it's fine do whatever you want okay cool i mean and obviously i don't think pauline is the type that likes to doll herself up you know <laughs> no <laughs> i was gonna say though i can only imagine pauline rolling with that um yeah <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell me about listening to songs of millerepa on a plane oh where did i i I think I mentioned, I don't know if it's necessarily the songs of Melarepa, but I think I mentioned that, like, I enjoy listening to Elian Radig oh, on planes. Gotcha. I think it's just that I like listening to Elian Radig in planes. My, primarily, I think, yeah, because her music just sort of sits there so beautifully within the drone of, yeah. <laughs> of an airplane and the sounds of the airplane. Um, and it's also just, like, such a calming, uh, expansive music to sort of calm yourself on a plane that's just claustrophobic and yeah maybe i don't love flying like i know a lot of people don't for many reasons but mm-hmm. it just sort of like is a way to zone and chill out but yeah i i i think there i think i responded to that on a interview when i was in europe and and that, and that particular trip i think every time i was on the plane i would listen to one of her albums i think i think at the time i, I had it on my phone or my some listening device um her feedback works i think is what right. i was be listening to yeah or the uh, kiema i think which was yes a, yeah i'm not sure if that was part of a triptych of of a few different pieces um yeah yeah Trilogy i think it was one of those yeah. i don't think i had the the millarepa on um on my plane device but that would have been a great one i wouldn't have i wouldn't have said i wouldn't have said no yeah definitely is one of the few artists that you can put on a plane and not have the engine be a detraction like it's really cool just goes straight into the flow yes yes and um you know there's an organization in new york called blank forms and they uh are curatorial platform as well as they uh, uh you know put out releases book releases and lp releases music releases uh, but they 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 uh pre-covid not too far before all this craziness happened they did they they did some like uh live not a screening but playing like on the original tape of um one of her really early works adnos i think it was one two and three and it was mm. perhaps a work that she made way early on in New York when she was like sharing a studio with Lori Schwiegel. And it's like a, I don't know, it's an incredibly long, it's in three parts and each part is like two hours. <sighs> and every night they would have, they had a, a, a listening session, I guess is what you would call it for each of these parts. And um, I attended one of those and it was, it was just, it was such a, a beautiful, amazing experience. You know, it's like her music is uh 
I think it's, it's all about like playing it on the right speakers and in the right room and at the right volume, you know, totally. and um, they, they did it excellently. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely one where it can just be a totally different record and kick up different frequencies and feelings just to change the acoustic environment it's in. I think it was in a church that I heard one of her pieces with everyone sat round in a circle facing each other, which was quite an odd way to experience a gig, um, especially yeah. if you're quite self-conscious. But um, obviously after about 10 minutes, everyone had their eyes closed anyway. And it was just, right. you're on Eliane's time by that by that time anyway, you know? <laughs> yes, she has the amazing ability to just stop and slow down time. And I, I really, I really emulate that and um, really, really respect that so much. Others attend to the business of this life. I concern myself with Others seek a pleasant mate. I'd only be troubled by a wife. Others. Cal, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for talking about, I mean, firstly, your new record, your music, but also these three important records and many other things besides. I've had a great time. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much for having me. And if people want to check out your music again online, where's the best place for them to go to keep up to speed? Yeah, I think probably, uh, you know, I always recommend the Bandcamp. It's one of the better portals out there. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I think if you do Cab Air Bandcamp, it'll pop up. So Wicked. that is the way to go. Cool. Thank you, Kat. And to everyone listening, see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>